morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. Good to be with you all. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll do our Sunday school. Heavenly Father, thank you for Sunday this day. Thank you for uh, giving us breath in our lungs that we may offer you praise and, and know that it finds an acceptable hearing because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Saviour, God, and intermediary, um, help us now this morning hour as we consider your uh, attributes, uh, especially this one, namely this one of impassibility. And we pray that as we come to know more about who you are in yourself, as you revealed yourself, that we would love you more, that we would glorify you more, that our faith would be strengthened as we know more about our great covenant God and Saviour. So we, we ask for your help this, this hour, that you be glorified and uh, that we would be edified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're moving on in our series through of Sunday schools through God's attributes, still in his incommunicable attributes, those attributes which God does not share with his creatures. And the attribute we're looking at today is called impossibility. I M P A S S I B I L T Y. So, impossibility, not impossibility. And this is actually connected uh, in a way with God's immutability, which we said that God does not change. So, has anyone heard of, or does anyone have a sense of what impossibility might be? God does. Right, God does not suffer. Uh, in other words, he is not affected by passions, is a slightly broader way of saying that. Right. This is a imp- very important historic attribute that has been confessed by the church. It's not a made-up thing from systematic theologians with nothing better to do. Uh, rather, this is something the church has confessed and believed uh, for millennia. It's one of attributes that distinguishes God from his creatures, because as creatures, we all know that we have passions and we are affected by our environments. We're affected by what other people do to us. We're even affected by our own actions and our own uh, desires and, and that kind of thing. Uh, since we've said that God in his being does not go undergo any change, i.e. is immutable, this is what we would call a corollary, something that follows in parallel that's necessary to that. Because if God was to undergo internal emotional change, then he would not be immutable. So in one way, we could consider this a subcategory of being immutable. But it's something important enough that we actually need to discuss it uh, separately. Now, uh, God, so just to make sure this is clear, God's impossibility means he does not experience emotional change in any way, and he does not suffer. Now, to clarify, this, this doesn't mean that uh, God chooses to be impossible, but rather he is that way by nature. In fact, it's necessary that God is that way in order for him to be God. Are we going to look at a couple of the things that people object to when we talk about this, this doctrine? One of which is like, well, God is, if God is apathetic, then he, he can't love. 
If God doesn't experience passion or emotions, then he's not actually capable of love. That's a common accusation. But really, that's not the case. And we'll, we'll look at why. God is actually, the phrase we can use is, uh, infinitely or maximally alive. Uh, I, I can't remember whether Antonio said it earlier on in the introduction to the attributes, so just tell me if he did. But we actually say that God is his attributes. God doesn't merely have attributes, but God is his attributes in infinite measure. So whatever God is, he is most those things. So God is truly truly alive, maximally alive, not in a limited sense. The fact that he doesn't have passions in the same way that we do doesn't mean he's less alive. In fact, it's what makes it possible for him to love with divine love. He can love to the infinite extent because he is not dependent on his creation. And finally, the last thing we'll do just as a look of how this doctrine applies to us and what the encouragements are of it is that it is actually a really great hope for us that God does not suffer in the way that we do in his divinity. That's what makes it possible for him to rescue a suffering world. He is not part of the suffering world. He is able to save the suffering world because he does not experience suffering in his nature. Okay. So, if we say that impossibility means God is not affected by us in his being, what exactly does that mean? Well, we've had a look at his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. We've also had a look at what did we call the fact that God is above and unlike his creation, his otherness. What did we call that? Do you remember? So that's his independence or his aseity. Okay. That God is not contingent or dependent. This was, I think, three weeks ago. Dependent or contingent on his creation. Uh, he's, he's unaffected uh, by it. He doesn't need anything. Remember, we looked at a whole bunch of scriptures about that, how God is not in need. Which is why he is, which is good news for us, because we are needy creatures. It would be no use if we had to go to another needy creature to have our needs met. No, we go to our needless creator who is all in all himself. And out of his fullness, he is able to bless and help and deliver and save us. So when we said God does not need anything... Uh, we said that because he's not subject to his creation for anything about his internal state. He's above his creation. He's not subject to change. Now, some people, when thinking about this, have relied on uh, Greek uh, philosophical ideas and said, well, God, is at, God, of course, doesn't have passions. He's indifferent. He's indifferent. So because he doesn't have passions, he doesn't actually, therefore, care about anything in particular, which means he's not really offended by sin. That's more a human problem. God's not really offended by sin. Nor does God actually even really love his creatures. That's the accusation that's levied. 
But this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the doctrine of impossibility teaches. We'll answer that, but let's, others have also said that suffering is in God's nature. Uh, this is uh, Multman in the 1970s, I think around 1978, wrote that God doesn't simply have freedom to show suffering love towards sinners, but he actually, his nature is self-sacrifice. That's his essence. Uh, so what Maltman was saying is God has to be this way uh, towards sinners. Uh, the Part of the motivation behind this in liberal theologies is that God must be in some way like us because we have emotions and emotions are good and it would make God some kind of mechanistic robot if he didn't have emotions. But we, God doesn't derive who he is from us. Right? He, he is independent of us. That's what we've already said. You'll, you'll see other expressions in the way that people talk about God. A um, man named... Uh, Simmons, who translated the Bible in something called the Passion Translation, he specifically states that that God is a is passionate God. He's a passionate God, which is actually an anti-confessional statement. It's against Orthodox Christian view about God. It's a complete misunderstanding because we say that God is loving and patient and kind and all of these things. But that's not the same as saying that God's actions are dictated to by his emotional state. It is true that God loves us. It's also true that God hates sin and that he can feel indignation and wrath, which we're going to see in the, in the sermon today. Uh, he can act patiently or his anger can be kindled these kinds of things, but these are not to say that God has passions that dictate how he's going to respond to creation. In fact, the, the fact that God actually responds to creation in a way is an analogy, by which I mean we see in language that's used in scriptures that God seems to respond to things. But all of these actions that God takes in, in Scripture come from his own decree. Do you remember we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago? That, that what God does is determined by God's own decree that he's going to do it. So yes, there is a, in time a, a response and there's consequences for action and all of that kind of thing. But God is not compelled to any of that. God has determined that would take place. In, the, in other words, God is not caused to do anything. God is the cause of what takes place. Okay, so here's a couple of points how we can think about this doctrine carefully. The first is we need to avoid any assertion that God is either dependent on the world or that he has no relationship to the world whatsoever. So those are two different errors. The one says God is so dependent on the world that what happens in the world affects God's nature. That's one error. 
The other is that God has no interest in relating to the world at all. But if you look at the Bible, neither of these are biblical categories. God is, is most free and sovereign, and yet in his decree, he determines that he will save sinners, love a people, and dwell with them forever. But these are not acts God is compelled to. They are acts that he chooses to do. Uh, acts, I think it's is it 17. We have that scriptural reference. Paul says, we live and move and have our being in God. But not the other way around. That would be pantheism. God doesn't live and move and have his being in everything. We live and move and have our being in him. God delights in our worship, but he does not need it. God feels and responds, but out of his own abundance and his attributes, not need or dependence on us. The second thing we can do to think about this is... um, So, did Antonio mention in introducing this the distinction between God's essence and energies? Have you spoken about that? Okay. So, God's essence is his nature... Right? What, what is God? Well, the most clear scriptural statement about this comes from John 4, when Jesus says, God is spirit. Okay? So, in his nature and essence, God is unchanging, immutable, impossible, infinite, all of these things. But his energies, that, that's not a funny pagan term, we literally mean his activities, okay, who God is and what God does. So God, who God is, isn't of himself and what God does, either in creation, providence, redemption, that kind of thing, right? Now, God acts and interacts with his creation in his external activities, his works, Right, but not in and of himself, because he's unchanging. Does that make sense? So yes, God feels wrath and indignation and love and patience and all of these things, but these are in connection with the way he is determined he will interact with the world. The direction is from him worldward, not uh, the world dictating his actions. And at this point, I think it's also, we can maybe consider, how is it possible, if God doesn't suffer, that Jesus suffered? That he came as the suffering servant, the Messiah who experienced pain and was put to death on the cross, and essentially um, blasphemed and abused and cursed and tortured, and definitely... You've got all of these images of suffering from the Old Testament in prophesying the work of the Messiah. Anybody got any idea how it's possible that God cannot suffer and yet Christ suffered? Must be the holy man fault. Must be the? Holy man fault. Uh, 100%. 
So we call in the incarnation, it's called the hypostasis, the hypostatic union. It's just a technical term for saying that in the incarnation, God the second God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature. So that we would say, um, probably the word truly is a little bit better than fully, because fully is quantitative, like almost like 100 plus 100% is 200%. We, so he, but rather he was truly God and truly man. And so as the God-man, he suffers with respect to his humanity. So in relation to his humanity, he suffers. But his divine nature does not change. It's why Jesus was simultaneously on earth and at the same time filling and upholding the heavens. Because his, he can't lose his attributes of being omnipresent. Otherwise he'd undergo a change and then he wouldn't be immutable and then he wouldn't be God, right? So he was, yes, here on earth in the incarnation, and yet simultaneously filling the heavens and upholding them. All things by the word of his power. Now, yeah, please. So now I have a point on the cross. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was separated from his father. Mm-hmm. Did he not suffer? Not as the human Okay, so his good, very good question. So his separation from from God the Father on the cross was with respect again to his humanity, because there can't actually be any division, division or divisibility in the Godhead. So the the eternal union of the persons, because they are of one substance, right? God is spirit. He's one in essence, three in persons. He's not three in essence, three in persons. He's one in essence, three in persons. So even on the cross, with respect to his divinity, there was no separation. But as the God-man incarnate, with respect to his humanity, he was separated, cut off from God. Same, Same thing applies to the idea of sin. His divine nature... In a, in a sense, it, he's, sin is imputed to him as the Messiah, to suffer as, and die as a human for death, death for a human. Otherwise, if it was possible for God to make redemption for us in and of himself, then we, wouldn't, then we would have a big problem with understanding how salvation works, because a, a, a man has to die for sin. Since man committed sin, man has to die for sin. So yes, he he died on uh, he died on the cross, but God's being didn't go, undergo any change. So God's being didn't cease existing or anything like that. Um, he was he was abandoned and forsaken as the God Man with respect to his humanity. If that answers your question. Okay, then uh, third, uh, God speaks to us uh, analogically. So the way we have an understanding of who God is and and what he does is by the analogies or the analogy of Scripture. So we know things, true things. The Scripture teaches us things that are true, but we don't know everything the way God knows it because God's knowledge is of a different kind to ours. Ours is a creaturely knowledge. That's 
fact that we can grow in wisdom and understanding proves that we have a different kind of knowledge to God. God's knowledge couldn't get any better, couldn't get more complete. It couldn't get qualitatively different in any way. He knows everything as it is, and he knows everything about himself as he is. We know God as he is revealed to us in the scriptures and in his Son, uh, and aspects of his nature in creation, right? Maybe his majesty, his eternal power, or that kind of thing. So, yes, God is spoken of as having compassion, fury, etc. But these, God doesn't experience these things in the way that we do. Uh, he experiences them as the one who is the cause, not who is acted upon by external causes. Any questions about that? How does it, uh, how does that like, this probably doesn't make much sense, but how does that relate to, to time? Mm -hmm. like, is he always perfectly angry forever, and also always perfectly loving forever? Okay, good question. So, God is love, is one of the statements we have in First John. So, love is part of God's essential nature, but he acts in love towards a people uh, by virtue of covenant. So, God possesses attributes and characteristics which, which will express themselves appropriately given what God has decided to do. So, just because God is love doesn't mean he was, um, that he had to, or it has wrath, doesn't mean that before people sinned, he was filled with wrath in the same way, right? In fact, God's wrath will be exercised in a, in a different way in hell, right? Than the, than the wrath and indignation he feels every day at sin, which we will talk about in Psalm 7 today. So, yeah, it doesn't mean that God is always uh, in and himself feeling every emotion about something. That's not the, that's not the idea. Uh, rather that uh, he does choose to relate to creation in a particular way, and that takes place in time. But at the, at the same time, he loved us before the foundation of the world. Right. Any other questions? Yeah. I, I'm sort of wondering, why didn't God make it easy for us to understand all these things? <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, uh, it really is um, out of this world of thinking, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's a good good point because it, it's it, it does matter. Um, what I was trying to um, say is that one of the I think the second point there of helping to try and understand what we mean and what we don't mean by this is that God in and of Himself, when if something happens and God responds to it, so let's say 
um, one of the people in the, in the line of uh, genealogies and chronicles says that so-and-so was evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord killed him, put him to death. That person did evil, and God responded. But that person didn't force God's hand. God, God, God put the, the moral framework for creation, inherent in creation, uh, making us image bearers and so on. And so the fact that he promised that he would that the soul that sins shall die doesn't mean that he's been affected by creation. Rather, he's actually brought about that result. So we, we don't mean that God doesn't respond to creation, but rather that none of that was because of creation, but rather that everything flows from God's decree. Right? That everything that comes to pass, that's from Westminster's short Catholicism, everything that comes to pass, God has has ordained that whatever comes to pass will come to pass. So when something bad happens to us, we have responses that although we can, might be able to control the magnitude, the impulse and the internal change that takes place is beyond our control. God does not experience that. So that's basically the distinction we're drawing here. Is that yes, God responds to things and acts in certain ways and, and logically, by analogy, feels things, but not in the same way that we do. Not in a way that alters, affects, and changes us. So we, are, we don't live in a disconnected way from creation. If a rock falls on me, that can cause some serious damage. Nothing can damage God. So that, that's some of the distinctions we try and draw with this, is that the best we can say is, um, God, yes, he appears to feel things, but clearly it can't be, just by implication, can't be in the same way that we do, otherwise he wouldn't be God. Could we also say that with our feelings, we might respond, we might have an emotion like of love, but we would respond to different people in different ways. Yes. When, when something is right, he responds, and when something is wrong, he responds. I think that's a really, really good point. It's actually something, if I had more time, I would have liked to have talked about, is God's response to stuff is always exactly just. It's proportional. Yes, yeah. Exactly. And it means his love will never change. Uh, he, he will never uh, change his mind, abandon his promises, any of those kinds of things. So that was basically the, the payoff of all of this, understanding this. I was going to say is that because God isn't 
affected by creation the way that we are, he can rescue us in our need. Um, he can, and he can love us in a way that, uh, without which uh, we couldn't be saved. So this, this matters because it means that we can actually pray to God and have confidence that he has the ability to answer our prayers. Uh, without this, what kind of God would we have? He'd be like the gods of the nations who are completely affected by the behavior of their, of their people. Okay, any other questions we can chat after? I think we'll just be do. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And I was okay, just yeah. thinking one of the aspects might just be, I mean, just the fact that God is unchanging and we are changing as, as creatures who really can't comprehend God as he is essence. So it takes a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of nuance to try and figure out, like, how God has revealed himself in scripture. Because um, he's, in a sense, like, He's condescended to reveal himself to us through his energies, and we're, we're trying to understand how he's revealed himself, but, um, but it takes a lot of language to do that because we're changing and we can't really fathom what an unchanging, infinite creator is. So it's, which I, is I guess a good thing, because if we could comprehend it, then it would be we'd understand God, but yes. we can't, which is why we haven't. But exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but he has revealed enough. And in a way that makes that makes it possible for us to know what we need to know, and these attributes and things by God are less things to be understood than things to be accepted, treasured, and worshipped. And the, and then we see the, the the practical value of these things is. So I think we can all see the the value of this truth. It's just trying to explain how it works is, is difficult. Uh, but that, the, the goal in the Christian life is not uh, understanding, per se, every aspect of, of, of doctrine. Uh, especially, Paul seems to draw a distinction between things that are easy to understand and difficult to understand. And that, that we make progress in these things and we, and we grow. Um, you know, very few people uh, can have, I mean, very few people will have clear-cut answers to some very difficult questions that are outstanding as we wrestle with these these topics. Um, I've found that the more I study, the more I realize things are they are extremely complex. God is, God is complex, but the, 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 at the same time, how does Jesus describe the nature of faith that actually apprehends these truths? He describes it as childlike faith, not simplistic, but that it, it, it simply recognizes truth and holds to it. Uh, and that we are formed in faith in that way. So, all right, let's pray. And then we can... Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we have these, this truth about you that's revealed in, in Scripture and confessed in, in church history. Uh, help us, uh, as, we, as we seek to, to understand it, that we would first uh, grasp it, um, as truth and to hold on to it and to delight in in your unchanging nature um, that means that we we have the great salvation that we do because of your impossibility so um, we pray that we'd be edified in our in our faith and 
uh, encouraged by the fact that this is what the church has has believed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.